This is an ABC podcast. Hi there, welcome to the minefield. Let's be honest. This show is not what it used to be, is it? I mean, our old stuff's better than our new stuff. And uh, no, probably. Nobody's buying our new stuff. Yeah. That's probably true. People when just want us to play the one, they, just, they just want us to go back and do old shows. Um, Say Aristotle. You... Say Aristotle. Yeah. The number of times, <laughs> honestly, if I had a dime. Yeah, Aristotle's been absent from the show for a while. There's been a lot more Hannah Arendt and Simone Weil and well, Stanley Cavell. And, they're both yeah. coming. They're both coming for this one too, really. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Anyway, um, <laughs> Scott's broken the fourth wall. That is Scott Stevens, my co-host. My name's Waleed Ali. Uh, we negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life on the show, or at least that's what it says on the tin. <laughs> I opened the show for a reason that way, Scott, and that's because today, it's interesting, this is one of those topics where um, all we have is a word. I think I texted you and said, hey, is there a show in nostalgia? Yeah. The topic nostalgia. Yep. And uh, I think you just missed the text and yeah, then I like did. a week later or something <laughs> replied and said, yes. oh, <laughs> yes, we should do this. And we've not really discussed it much no, more since, I don't think. So here we so are. So absolutely anything could happen here. But can I just explain what I had in mind? Yes, please. I was thinking of nostalgia as, um, is dominant the right word? It's probably not the right word, but mm-hmm. an increasingly prominent feature of our cultural landscape. So I wasn't thinking of it necessarily in political terms or anything like that, but more that there is this thirst for nostalgia that expresses itself in popular culture over and over and over again. And I've wondered two things about it. One is, is this genuinely something, ironically, new? Hmm. That hmm. is the level and the prominence that nostalgia has. The fact that being a nostalgia act, for exa- example, is a perfectly lucrative way to to survive in the world of culture making. Hmm. Uh, is that new and does that say something about our current moment or perhaps our, I don't know, psychological stuntedness or or the opposite? I don't know. Something like that. The other thing was um, if it is new, is it merely um, a side effect of, I don't know, the, the affordances of technology really, such that we're, we're now, we live in a world, I think it might have been even Zygmunt Bauman who made this point, that nothing's forgotten anymore. Mm. Even in even as everything becomes yesterday's news before tomorrow arrives, there's this way in which you can always live in a present of your choosing, mm. right? That, um, things are just there forever in some kind of way and accessible forever. And so I think about something like the recent phenomenon with Kate Bush, right? That, um, Through Stranger Things. Mm. Yeah. Yep. And that song going, running up that hill, going to number one. And I mean, number one means something very different now to what it used to mean because it takes in streams and things like that. Where it, it means virality. It means virality is what it means. Yeah, which is totally and, – and that means – actually, maybe this is a good example. That means that old songs can become number one. That's right. And it's not that anything different is happening. No, it's right. that what we're measuring now is how many listens something yeah. is getting in a week or a month or whatever rather than what – we purchased. If you'd done that in, I don't know, 1984, you may well have found that the most listened to song um, in a given week in 1984 was actually from 1975. Mm. It's just that there was no way to measure it because you were doing it on a vinyl turntable or whatever. Um, the, I don't know, the sheer proliferation of performances now, the, the fact that touring has become cheaper, for example, means that nostalgia acts can survive in a way that they perhaps didn't they can be discovered by new generations and so on and so forth. So that was kind of what's going on in my head is like, you know, is this something, an evolution in culture or is it really an evolution in technology that gives, just makes something possible that wasn't previously? Now, it may be possible, even if that second explanation is true, that that then yields something or produces something in our culture that is new and we can have a discussion about whether it's lamentable um, or something for which we should be glad. but. Nonetheless, um, I think there's a question that hasn't actually quite been resolved there. I think sometimes we jump straight to the analysis of what is it about us that, you know, means we get stuck in the past so much and that nostalgia has become so increasingly appealing. Uh, And I wonder if we rush to that question all too quickly. Hmm. Interesting. Because one of the things I think you raise, and I'm really glad for that explanation, because one of the things I think you're raising is nostalgia as commodity, 
Um, you could even think about it as the kind of thinning out of nostalgia or even fleeting nostalgia, which I don't think you can even evoke without transforming nostalgia into something different. Um, I, it's been fascinating for me to watch a three decades long process really come to its full form in something like Stranger Things. Um, I was puzzled for the longest time about this kind of endless series of remakes, whether it be uh, remaking the A-Team into a movie with Liam Neeson and whoever else, Bradley Cooper. Uh, who on earth thought it was a good idea to take Hasbro's Transformers cartoons and turn them into digitally, well, well, really, what are they? They're digital monstrosities. Um, what, what exactly is going on there? What idea was it that all the best ideas belong to the past, but what we now have is the technological sophistication to give them their best realization? And to some extent, I, I think there's a form of nostalgia. Uh, I don't think it is nostalgia. We can get to the definitions in a moment. But there's this form of nostalgia, which is, wouldn't it be great if... Uh, if the people who had the ideas in the 70s and 80s had the technology that we have now and could really bring their imaginative visions to their fullest form without realizing that in a very real way, it was precisely the constraints of the 70s and 80s. It was the limitations yeah. on hand-drawn uh, two-dimensional cartoons, for instance, or, uh, or uh, music of a very, very, very particular form. Uh, only slightly synthesized or whatever. Um, it was precisely the limitations that gave these objects to which we are now attached their soul, their spirit. And as soon as you bring them up to date, can can I take a slight detour here, which you may find charming or might think is <laughs> completely stupid? Charming. Go on. Have you ever listened to, say, um, uh, either Baroque or Romantic era symphonies on period instruments. You mean live? Uh, or, or, or recording. So, so for instance... Um, it, so not, not performed with modern orchestral instruments, but with instruments of the age? Yes, yes. So no, I don't think I have. Yeah. It is, it's a revelation. Um, so, for instance, hearing one of Beethoven's symphonies played on, uh, on leather-pulled timpanis and catgut strung violins and valveless horns, for instance. Everything is faster. Everything is lighter. Everything has to be played at such a breakneck speed that suddenly Beethoven loses his pomp, his grandeur. And there's a playfulness. There's something almost bordering on punk rock to it. You realize that it's the very limitations of the instruments that, that are pressing the the players, the musicians, to the very limits of what's physically possible. And it's that, it's in that tension between the physical limitations of the instruments and the demands of the music that the genius arises. And I think there's something about nostalgia, and again, I don't think it actually is nostalgia, but there's something about our fondness for the past where that ought to defy this belief that if we just took their ideas and coupled it with our technology, we come up with something magical. We don't. We actually come up with a further series of monstrosities in an age of mass reproducibility. And here's one of the things I've been thinking a lot about, Waleed. I think what we take for nostalgia, and again, I don't think it is nostalgia. <laughs> we'll get to what I think nostalgia is. I think is. you've disclaimed that. You know, uh, I? Okay. Yeah. So what we think of nostalgia is actually a longing for quality. I think about this all the time. Um, so my, my oldest son, uh, for as long as he's been, you know, semi-useful with his thumbs, uh, he's loved gaming. And this longing that he is still uh, obsessed with about when collector's editions of games were released with real statues and a degree of care was taken instead of what there is now, which is you buy collector's editions of games and what you have are all of these digital trinkets, these little things that millions and millions of other people will also have. So in a, in a time of mass digital reproducibility, sometimes nostalgia takes the form of, I want something that is only mine. I want something that was made with the care and the quality that it was 30, 40 years ago. I want something that is peculiar and flawed. I want the vinyl, 
with its crackles and its hisses, not a digitally remastered version that I get through iTunes, for instance. So you I might have just explained NFTs to me. Yes, yes, that's exactly what's going on. An NFT mm. is a nostalgic longing for an individual item in an age of mass digital reproduction, where, where, where nothing yeah. has value because everybody has it. Yeah, even as it commits to reproducing those exact conditions. Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So I think there's, there's something there that gets to our cultural longing. There's a, I mean, what nostalgia, and, and I think here we're talking about it culturally or aesthetically, what nostalgia is, is the placing upon ourselves of certain limits in the hopes that by placing upon ourselves those limits, we discover something of the genius that we had such fond feelings for way back when. And I think that's all really come to life then with a show like Stranger Things, which is the ultimate realization of this decades-long uh, series of kind of recreations of old objects. Stranger Things doesn't recreate old, old objects. It simply refeatures them um, as a way of, and I mean, this is part of the marketing campaign, isn't it? It's a way of bringing middle-aged parents together with younger children uh, around yeah. a shared fascination of a common object. And the parents are left dissatisfied because, oh, it's not the way it used to be. And children are left, wow, you really used to like this? Yeah, but the opposite is true as well. Like I think about a show like Mad Men, which I have to confess I haven't watched a lot, but mm. I hear people talk about it a lot. So I get a sense of what people are responding to in it. Or even a show like um, The Newsreader, mm. um, the ABC series. These are set in particular times and you could argue that they don't need to be if you want, I guess. I don't think it would be a very convincing argument. No, it wouldn't I mean, Mad Men has to be set, set right. where it is. The newsreader, you could say they've set it in the 80s because they get to have fun with 80s aesthetic, but yeah. they could have made a... And gender politics. Yeah, right. Mm. But that's... Okay, you've taken me to my point. Oh, I beg so your get on Sorry. with it, Waleed. My point is those sorts of shows are set in those times. They have a kind of nostalgic effect because you can't help, especially if you were alive at the relevant time, you... You can't help but see them and, and have that sort of nostalgic dopamine hit. But they're really done as a way of talking about how far superior the modern yes, that's right. society is than that's right. the earlier one, right? So isn't that the opposite? Yes. So these shows are not about? nostalgic. These shows are not. They, they, these shows are an example. They kind of are, right? They do. They do tr certainly the newsreader, I would say, has notes of nostalgia all the way through it. Yeah, but what it really is is a, is a form of presentism. It's a form of judgment of the past through the moral standards of the, of the present. Yes, but it's great fun. Yes. You get to go, oh, remember that story? Oh, remember those, that hair? Isn't and that, it interesting? They have but to that's, use cassette, like tapes and but that's, things. That, that's why it? there's something – I mean, the first season of Mad Men will always be the first or will always be the best because the sheer number of gratuitous shots of people smoking in all the most inappropriate places, and then the yeah. fact that the central advertising campaign is all about cigarettes, that's the shock value. So you have the limitations of a kind of morally stunted world that is now unimaginable in our time, and then that bristles up against the genius of an ad campaign that is entirely unprincipled, uh, that is thoroughly uh, dissimulating and disingenuous, uh, and yet whose brilliance is in its sheer, well, it's not even plausible, is it? It's just, it's just striking. It's genius in its deviousness. It's genius in the same way that Mao Zedong is actually kind of genius or Ebola is genius in its own way. Um, so, so I think these, these are still forms of, of aesthetic celebration, kind of something of its own right or of presentist critique. I think what's interesting, Waleed, what we're not quite getting at is that nostalgia properly considered is inflected by a dissatisfaction with the present. Um, for nostalgia, Which is why you say these things are not nostalgic. Yes, yes. So nostalgia is always, there is something about our moment for all of its glitz, its glamour, its seeming convenience, its seeming advancedness and moral superiority. There's something about the moment that leaves me dot, dot, dot. And I think that's where, that's where what's interesting about nostalgia and what's dangerous about nostalgia comes in. Because if one's dissatisfaction with the present is, you remember when the world was simpler than it is now, when it was slower than it is now, when people talk in 
in ways that I can understand, or the food options that were available were more straightforward than they are now. Um, they're, they're forms of nostalgia as a kind of longing for a past in which the world, quote unquote, made sense. That can have its, I mean, you and I can both think of many ways in which that has its dangerous forms. Uh, a world um, pre a certain degree of immigration, for instance, a world before certain forms of either uh, civil or uh, sexual and gender rights were codified. Um, so there are certain ways in which nostalgia, you remember sort of Trump used to do this all the time. Uh, he's complaining about uh, the protections that the NFL would put in place uh, to ensure that athletes weren't being kind of devastated uh, through aggressive mm. tackles. And, you know, well, I remember... Well, you, see this, you see this most strongly in rugby league. Yes, exactly. Yeah. E exactly right. Now, I think that's, that's a kind of... There's something really, I don't know, disgusting about that form of nostalgia. You know, nostalgia when men are men, if I could just put it that way, and, you know, women knew their place or whatever, however it goes. Um, but then I think, and, and you know, we might want to talk about the politics of nostalgia with our, with our guest, because I, I think there are forms that really do need to be called for what they are, which is a longing for, for simplicity, but a kind of bad faith simplicity, simplicity where I don't have to struggle to know, by, know my neighbors or to sort of understand citizens around me. But then I, I wonder, Waleed, I mean, there are forms of nostalgia that cannot help but be an enactment or an expression of judgment of our present, that the way things are is not the way that things have to be or the way that things necessarily always should have been, that there were decisions that were made that we are now suffering the consequences of now. I, you know, I, I think of Thoreau's self-imposed solitude, for instance, his removal of himself from the life of Concord, Massachusetts, there was a nostalgia. I mean, the fact that he departed on July 4th is saying something, by the way. But there is a form of nostalgia where he's saying decisions have been made of which we are the inheritors. And we didn't necessarily consent to those decisions being made on our behalf. So I wonder where nostalgia as a longing for certain forms of simplicity or simplification when people spent more time reading the little news that they read rather than trying to superficially skim across everything. I think there are forms of nostalgia as an enactment of judgment on the present that are important. There are also forms of nostalgia precisely because they're longing for good old days that weren't good for a great many of our fellow citizens that are absolutely bad. So I guess on both the cultural and the aesthetic front on the one hand, and then on, on the political uh, ethical front on the other, I, I, I guess the question I keep coming back to is, is nostalgia... A good thing? Well, yes and no. Is it necessarily a bad thing? Well, yes and no. Yeah, I think there are also thinner forms of nostalgia where really all you're doing is evoking a time in your life. Yeah, um, I think that's right. That's I true. often play this game with people. Have I ever done it with you? I really should if I haven't. Where I'll just say, all right, if, for the rest of your life, you have 10 years, I suppose it's really 11 years of music that you can listen to and you're not allowed to listen to anything outside those years oh, ever again. Wonderful. What a wonderful um, what, Which 10 years are you choosing? They have to be consecutive. Uh, they don't have to correspond to a particular decade. You can say, you know, I don't know, 2003 to 2013 if you want, whatever. Uh -huh. um, anyway, and I, I just ask people this from time to time when we're bored and I can't think of anything else to ask. And what's really fascinating is musicians always pick a very carefully considered time period almost always something that lands within the 60s and 70s. Really interesting. <laughs> really fascinating. But everybody else seems to choose a time that corresponds to the same period of their life, oh, which is that? probably about late teens into their early 20s, something around there. Right? It's really fascinating. So I think that there's a certain nostalgic impulse that is just that. It's just, it's just trying to live for a time in the spirit of that person that you used to be hmm, um, to revive the happiest moment of your life or whatever, which is very powerful with something like music because it's associative. It's perhaps less powerful with film, although we do see a lot of remakes that try to recapture it. Top Gun is probably an example hmm. of that. So there are examples of that. The kind of nostalgia you are talking about that has a sort of moral or political residue, I think becomes very difficult to distill along a good, bad axis the yeah, way that... Yeah. You seem to have tried, because even as I listen to your description, I mean, your description of what is bad, nostalgia, 
and your description of what is good nostalgia really just seem to me another way of expressing your moral and political mm. preferences. It's true. That's absolutely right. right. I can't think of a way you could hold the positions you've just articulated that doesn't boil down to that. Yeah, I think that's probably right. right. Where there's some kind of over, you know, more quote-unquote objective way of discerning what would be good or bad. So in other words, you say imagining a world where, you know, before migration or whatever, going back to that, and that was just a better world or whatever. Well, sure, you say that's bad because that is your political conviction. Mm. Um, It's very likely most people listening to this show would agree with you. But can you distill it in a way that doesn't boil down to that? So if, if that's the case, if my observation is true or true enough, then we don't really get any further in interrogating what's good or bad about nostalgia. I think I would approach it slightly differently. I think I would approach it saying there are inherent problems with nostalgia, one of which is it might become a form of escapism mm-hmm. where one refuses to engage with the world in which one actually lives and just seeks to, to vacate from it. And while we might understand the desire for that or you know, even the psychological imperatives for doing that from time to time, once that becomes a habit, once that becomes a way of being, then we potentially become, I don't know if ignorance is quite the right word, but we sort of become detached from reality in a way that I think is a problem. Another way of looking at it, and this is a position that I've articulated before, would be the conservative criticism of nostalgia and the very thing that makes conservatism thoroughly uh, and importantly distinct from nostalgia. Because mm. I think conservatism is often derided as nostalgia. It's I actually that's, not. It's, that's right. I think it, that's right. It's anti-nostalgic mm. in that what conservatism is trying to be is pragmatic. Mm. Um, and valuing of that which is established as tradition and which defines our status quo on it's the a, understanding. It's about continuity, not nostalgia. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And that actually nostalgia becomes a problem within conservatism because what nostalgia is doing is disrupting continuity, usually. So by trying to recreate a past that is gone, Interesting. That that's actually a deeply anti-conservative thing to do. You might even call it a progressive thing to do, depending on your definition of progressivism. Mm. And so I could see an argument for saying uh, nostalgia is bad on those sorts of grounds, right? But I'm not sure I can quite go with you in trying to tease it out the way you've done. Yeah. Because I think it just becomes another way of prosecuting your pre-existing politics, your pre-existing moral commitments, rather than, here we go, to use a phrase you like, um, offering a more cross-cutting analysis of the way Mm. nostalgia should work. Can I just add... I don't disagree with anything that you said. I think that's exactly right. And I was deliberately kind of being quite brutal in the way that I was trying to distill <laughs> things, which you're right, wasn't helpful in the slightest. Let me, let me I try to say that. I no, no, that. I'm saying that. I'm saying that. Um, let me try to inflect, though, that point that I was trying to make with one maybe slight qualification. I do think that one of the things that nostalgia necessarily has at the heart of it, I mean, insofar as it registers a degree of dissatisfaction for the present, it is an orientation towards what one believes to be of greater quality as opposed to mere number or, you know, the shininess or the newness of of something. It also tends, I think, towards simplification. So simpler times or slower times or times when more care was taken rather than simple speed. And I think because of that... Can I just say only sort of? Yeah, only sort of. It's true. Because when I think about... um, You might say I have a nostalgic approach to music. I wouldn't put it that way, but I could say you could argue that. But one of the things that I get, if you like, nostalgic about are those forms of music that are richer and more complex than the overwhelmingly simplified offerings of today. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is actually true. All right, let me just add this one last thing, though. Um, Nostalgia, of course, has it at its heart, and you can hear it, you know, in the forms of medicine called analgesics, um, trying to sort of deal with intense pain. Nostalgia has at its heart, etymologically, the idea of pain, and it's pain for what's one's own. It is, 
it is an intense longing for what is familiar, uh, for what, what, what is one's own place, one's own people, which is why I promised a reference to Hannah Arendt. Um, Arendt, <laughs> I think, absolutely rightly said that nostalgia can in fact be a species of loneliness, but that loneliness cannot be more different from solitude. Solitude is something that one chooses. And so that, that, that's why I'd say that, that Thoreau indulges in a form of radical solitude. He withdraws his, withdraws his voice from the mechanisms of democratic consent. Loneliness, and Arendt was brilliant in noting this in Origins of Totalitarianism, loneliness is most acutely felt in company with others. But it's in company with others with whom one does not feel at home, with, with others whom one does not understand, or with whom one does not feel camaraderie or fraternity or sorority. And that, I think, is what can make nostalgia, when it's driven in that more simplistic or populist direction, a longing to be familiar, to be surrounded by people with whom I do not have to work in order to understand. Um, the, the simplification of the social bond. That's where it becomes, I think, more morally clear and maybe less relativistic in the sense that you just critiqued it. Yeah, I, okay, so that's helpful. But I would add one writer to that, and that is the idea of a society where you have to do less work in order to do the basics or to get along um, and that therefore has less friction within it is a... That's something that human beings will naturally long for. Yes. Yes. Because actually we're only built for a certain level of complexity. So That's there's right. the I can't remember who did it now, but they cracked the magical number. That <laughs> the human brain can only really cope with something like 150 connections with people. Oh God, right? really? Yeah. Once we get with beyond me, it's about five. People, I'm quite sure. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. You might you might be limited in that way, but. Once we get beyond knowing 150 people, it, it doesn't work, which is part of the reason I think that fame is such a potentially dangerous and alienating thing. Mm. And part of the reason I think, yet another reason I would add, that social media is so rapacious is that we now live in a world where we are expected to know everyone all the time mm. and deal with a level of diversity among people that would be unrealizable amongst 150 people. Mm. Let me put it that way. Mm, nice. Right. Um, so this is not an anti-diversity point. It's more, you know, I, it would not be for me to make that point, <laughs> such a point. But it's more a point about, maybe it's more a complexity point, which comes back to what you were gesturing at before. I don't think it's a mere atavism point. No, though, you're is right. What, is what I'm getting at. There is something about the hyper-complexity of a mediated society rather than one that is defined by sort of real-world communal bonds and something that is so borderless and so exponential in the way that social interaction seems to work that is just incompatible with us. Mm. And maybe that is what drives the, the nostalgia impulse, if indeed that's what's happening and it's not just a technological affordance. That's perhaps what's driving it. Brilliant is that it's a world that is actually intelligible and comprehensible. I don't mean comprehended. I mean comprehensible mm. to the human brain mm. uh, and to the human as a social animal. And that's why, anyway. can I just say really quickly, yeah. that's why dissatisfaction with the present, and I, if, if we can agree that that is the common denominator in just about all the forms of nostalgia that we've been talking about, dissatisfaction with the present can take one of two expressions. One is this longing for the past, which may or may not be bad faith, which may or may not be kind of credible or, or thoroughgoing. Or it could be a kind of straining towards what uh, Nietzsche and through him Stanley Cavell call life's further dawn, tomorrow and the day after tomorrow. In other words, a dissatisfaction with the superficiality and the multiplication of relationships now could then also take the form of a winnowing and deepening of those already existing actual relationships now, taking that further perfectionist step into the future. So that's why I think dissatisfaction with the present can either be backward looking and bad faith, or it can be future looking 
and rededicate itself, recommit itself to something like the kind of authenticity, the kind of value that one mm. that we ordinarily uh, seek in the past. Unlikely, though, if you think it's the product of a machine that's unstoppable. Yes, that's right. Which is, I think, a growing sense. Yep. Um, let's bring in our guest, shall we? Scott, do you mind if we break convention and I introduce oh, please and do. Ask the first question? Please, please, please. Our guest today is a wonderful man who, with whom I'm a colleague by the name of Ben Wellings. He's a senior lecturer in politics and international relations at Monash University. Uh, and the reason I wanted to ask the first question, Scott, is I want to take this in a totally kinky direction. So, Ben, <laughs> welcome. Hello. I hope you're not spooked by what I just said. I'm going to say, I want to ask you the question this way. You've heard what we've had to say about nostalgia. I know your political interests as, a, as an academic, so I'm just going to say this. Brexit, go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, look, I, I've, I've loved listening to what you, you two have been talking about, and, I, and I've got lots to say, including something about, you know, Kate Bush's running up that hill and kind of questions <laughs> about, well, what are we nostalgic about? But I'll, I'll go to your question first, because, of course, if we're thinking about the politics of nostalgia... Brexit is one of, is a great example uh, in terms, and, and I think like I'm, I'm just going to talk about the specifics of the campaign that resulted in the referendum result, but but then broaden it out maybe to to kind of nationalist movements and notions of golden ages and uh, you know times when things were better. So I think the first thing is you know when we think of the the slogan that that went with Brexit, take back control. There's nostalgia built into those three words already, isn't there? There's there's obviously uh, a sense of a time before where uh, control was exerted. And of course, you know, some of the strength of these these ideas and, and these slogans are that they are vague enough that people can read all sorts of things into them. I mean, what you were saying about immigration obviously played into that. And so there's a kind of an imagination of a time when, you know, as Scott was saying, everyone understood each other or everyone got on or there was no difference or conflict. And of course, we can sit here and empirically disprove all of that. But in terms of its political strength, uh, that was, for a variety of reasons, very, very convincing. But I think that, that Brexit, and, and why I like to think about Brexit as a, as a nationalist moment, you know, even if it's not necessarily a nationalist movement, um, it sort of fits into a pattern that we see in other nationalist moments when we take a historical look at and a kind of comparative look at, at nationalist moments and movements. And whereas there is a golden age, and, and the point that, that the politics of this golden age is not to sort of get, you know, I think, Waleed, as you were saying, not, not to get kind of stuck in the nostalgia and you just sort of end up in the kind of ideological doldrums because you, you, you always think it was better some other time and you can't move forward. It's actually the thing that propels you forward. It, it acts as a heuristic for individuals, groups, organisations to sort of say, well, look, you know, we used to be like this. Whether that's whether it's correct or not, but but it operates to say, look, we used to be like this. What's gone wrong? Something's gone missing along the way. We can be better again, or you know, to to shift this to the United States. You know, make America great again. You know, so it's not that America's never been great, but there's something implicit in that that says it lost its way, uh, and now the political project is to return it to the to the true path. And so nostalgia there is is this in, in very powerful and important element. In, in any and all nationalist uh, movements. Okay, Kate Bush, go. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, so look, I, you know, like the next person, when that song came on uh, Netflix, which I was, you know, watching with my children, and so it's got buy-in, isn't it? It's like, it's like when they put adult content in cartoons, a bit like yes. the Transformers example, you know, so, so the adults are watching it at one level, the kids are watching it at another, but everyone's happy. Um, so, yeah, that's, I have a very particular memory of that, which goes back to uh, my childhood in England. And in it's, it's the sound of a man ringing a bell. This is going to sound very Pavlovian. A sound of a man ringing a bell. Uh, the particular man was an Italian immigrant to uh, England who had the entrepreneurial wit to buy up an army surplus van and turn it into a mobile chip shop. So what he would do, because I grew up in a small village, and there were several small villages around this town. And he would, there were no fish and chip shops in those villages, right? So obviously this is a key part of the English diet. And uh, he spotted uh, a gap in the market, converted this truck into a mobile fish and chip shop. And of an evening, he would come round, ring his bell to let people know uh, that he was there, park on the village green. Everyone would sort of like run out and get their fish and chips and then go back in and watch Top of the Pops, 
on which, you know, Kate Bush was performing. So I, <laughs> and this is another further <laughs> act of blending. I, I didn't like fish at the time. So I used to buy the deep fried spring roll to have with my chips. So I've got this very particular association of that song with the cold weather of a, of a January winter, watching Kate Bush on top of the pops, eating a spring, deep fried spring roll and chips. So my, <laughs> the point I'm trying to say is like, what are we nostalgic for? So when, when I hear that song, Am I nostalgic for the mid 80s, you know, the taste of fish and chips, uh, an immigrant's entrepreneurial, you know, my childhood? There's a whole lot of, there's a lot going on in there, isn't it? And I think, as your conversation has said, there's a lot to unpack in that sense of that nostalgia. But like, you know, where that might trip over into something political, I think is, it's got to be in the sort of the shared communication, even if people are kind of like missing different reasons for this. And I, and I suppose the mid 80s takes me back something you were saying, Waleed, is there's also a kind of a nostalgia for old conservatism, isn't there? You know, conservatism isn't, ain't what it used to be either. And I think, you know, even mm. in progressive circles, there was a sense that, you know, before the 1980s, before Reagan and Thatcher changed conservatism from the kind of thing that you were talking about, that sort of pragmatic, it's not reactionary, uh, they turned it into something more radical. And, you know, and it's it's only kind of increased on that, in that vein. And, um I think there is a nostalgia on the left, if you like, or the progressive side of politics, because maybe the left and right dichotomy doesn't work so well anymore. But, you know, for for a kind of kinder, gentler conservatism. So, you know, that that's how I would <laughs> tie Kate Bush and um, Spring Roll and Chips into a discussion of nostalgia. It's an extraordinary synthesis. It really is. Scott, I don't know that we've had a take. Oh, I love it. I love it. You know what? I mean, what immediately and quite powerfully comes to mind, though. I mean, Ben, you just described a series of emotional connections that are visceral in the deepest sense of the term. And that's why I sort of went overboard in our earlier conversation trying to say what nostalgia is and what nostalgia isn't, or, you know, that's not really what nostalgia is. Because often the way that we talk about nostalgia already presumes that kind of either that commodified form uh, nostalgia as, you know, something that one buys, like a fashion. Or that form of nostalgia which can wither under the weight of another person's contempt. In other words, nostalgia, uh, you know, for me, the never-ending image of Brexit is Bob Geldof and his high-class cronies on a barge on the Thames giving the finger uh, and other rude gestures to, um, was it uh, protesters on a adjoining boat? Farage, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was a bizarre moment, wasn't it? It was, it yeah, was awful. The, the, the kind of... I mean, everything that was worst in the debate, I think, well, not even the debate, but was there as if a powerful sense of dislocation, of not being at homedness in one's own country can respond constructively or could be expected to respond constructively to a display of overweening contempt. So, I mean, this, uh, this may be a very, very strange way of, uh, of asking what's otherwise a simple question. But if nostalgia is an affect and something, yes, it can be chastened, yes, it can be critiqued, but, it, but it's nonetheless viscerally powerful in the way that powerful moral emotions are. How can nostalgia, even if it's maybe not quite so constructive forms, how can that be brought into something like shared political discourse um, without going to the, well, we can't just critique them, we also have to understand them? I mean, it, even think now of the way that many on the left are trying to repurpose a form of nationalism, which I think Waleed and I both regard as being, for the most part, a good thing. Um, how can nostalgia... Patriotism, not nationalism. Uh, patriotism, I beg your pardon, yes. How, how can that be brought constructively, fully, affectively into our shared discourse rather than just being kind of either uh, demeaned or written off as a kind of desperate atavistic longing of those who are quickly passing away? That's a really crucial question for our times, isn't it? Because it, it comes to, I mean, if there is this deepening division between political partisans as, you know, there, there does seem to be, varying in strength from place to place and time to time. But perhaps though the affordances of technology that, that you both were speaking about earlier, that might 
might explain it, but whatever is, you know, we've got it. So, so how do we then overcome these feelings of, uh, I, I like the way you're putting this, that, that there's some people are nostalgic and other people have contempt for that nostalgia. And so we, we've somehow got to, depending on what position we're in, of course, you know, one group would have to empathise with and listen to and understand the other group in the expectation that the reverse might happen. And I suspect that's where things are breaking down mm, at the moment. Uh, but let's imagine that that did happen. Then, then I think there could be something productive in saying, well, what is it that's so bad about now that you don't like? Because if, if I just go back to the, the Brexit example, the, a lot of the first, you know, p people's analysis of, the, of, of Brexit goes to this nostalgia that is sort of was kind of xenophobic. It was supposed to be about anti-immigrants. There was another form of no nostalgia that you might call a social democratic nostalgia, which was about, well, we don't like neoliberalism. Hmm. You know, there, there, there used to be, you know, my town's high street used to have shops in it, and now, now it doesn't, right? There's just big supermarkets on the edge of town, and you know, there's no life in the centre of town, uh, and it's been ruined. Now, whether, of course, that's the European Union's fault or not is now by the by. But the point was there was a nostalgia for community. Hmm. I think you mentioned that. Um, it, it does seem to be the product of anomie and anomic effects, which there's always this tension, I think. Uh, I mean, we, we spent a lot of time thinking about, like, you know, the, the technology of the last 10 or 15 years. and But it's always had that, you know, I think, you know, newspapers, pamphlets, broadsheets, satirical cartoons, they've all somehow both undermined and created new senses of, of community and new scales of community, probably in the last sort of two, three hundred years. Um, so that's going on as well. So there seems to be this constant sense of anomie. And maybe the, the nostalgia is, is, a, is a way of kind of overcoming that and finding some time at a personal, you know, some time in the past at a personal level that meant a lot to you and things were simpler, things were happier. Um, it might be that the, the age of people uh, for whom nostalgia appeals is not unimportant here. You know, mm. if, if it is mostly men in their 50s, you know, maybe they are. I'm speaking as a man in my 50s. But, you know, like if if that is the, the case, um, that, uh, you know, the politics of nostalgia appeals to those that that cohort, then, you know, there's some kind of connection between the personal and political going on there. But I think the political stuff has to come when it stops being an individual feeling intensely felt and becomes organised and communicated at, at, at big levels, uh, at large levels, with the intent to, to change something in a way that whatever group feels is preferable. Wow. To change or preserve? Well... It depends, doesn't it? Hmm. Pre preserving might be involved changing. You yeah. know, this, this is yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great quote, isn't there, from... Um, Giuseppe di Lampedusa's The Leopard, you know, if, if you want things to change around here, you know, no, sorry, if you want things to stay the same around here, things are going to have to change. And that's that's almost like the sort of a good explanation for conservatism. Um, so I think I think you can't avoid change, can you? But you, you may not like the, cha the things changes as broad. Can I ask this then? Let me just go back to the example of the period instruments that I tried to sort of riff on before. Um, if we think of two forms of publicly performed nostalgia, and by performed, I'm not meaning that they're merely superficial, but these are things that aren't just felt, but they are things that are communicated. Um, I was really struck during her initial pitch for, I believe it was in her actual kind of press event uh, when she uh, announced her candidacy as the one of the future leaders of the Tory party, Penny Mordaunt, said, you know, sometimes you feel when you go and listen to Paul McCartney at Glastonbury, you know, immediately evoking two kind of huge iconic moments of a particular generation, and you hear him play the new stuff and it's, it's all good, but what do you want? You really just want him to go back to the hits, don't you? There's a kind of there's a political aesthetics of nostalgia there. You know, things have changed too much. You want to go back to what you like. But then there's another form of kind of performed political nostalgia, which is we've had Australia Day on this day for the last however many decades. If it was good enough 
for my parents and it was good enough for their parents, then why can't it just be good enough for and then fill in the blanks about the people who are dissatisfied with that particular date? I mean, both of them are publicly performed forms of nostalgia. One of them is, I think it's best referred to as a kind of aesthetic or even culinary nostalgia. I would, I would say that Penny Mordens is there a culinary. I like the taste of that kind of music. I like the hits. It, you even refer to it as kind of superficial. But for nostalgia to be anything other than mere atavism and thereby excluding certain crucial others, it seems to me that nostalgia has to work with the existing limits of something. It has to, it has to live with the limits of what has been inherited, what has been received, but also it has to live with the limits of the political community in which one finds oneself. And it's only in the tension in between those two limits, what's been received and the world as it actually is, that something truly virtuosic, a, a real transformation, or a, 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 something that has that continuity that Walid was talking about before, but nonetheless adjusts itself creatively, imaginatively to the conditions of the present. H how does nostalgia, I guess, work productively uh, in a manner that is both politically and, say, morally or philosophically defensible with the limits here thinking of the past as what's been received and the political community in which one actually finds oneself. How can, I guess, nostalgia work creatively within those kind of tensions without spilling too much into, well, just throw out what's been received or uh, what I want is a, is a political community that looks the way that I want it to be rather than as it actually is? Mm. There's, I, I think it, that's partly about the political process, isn't it? That what, what capacity does the political system, let's just call it that, the, the politics around this have to uh, hear and accommodate views? And these could be, you know, minority views or even just non-majoritarian non views. Uh, and at the same time, I think then the nostalgia to be productive, to go back to your, this, this idea of good and bad nostalgias, and I think what Walid was saying about, well, you know, if you get kind of stuck in a nostalgia, doesn't matter if it makes you feel happy or sad, you know, it, it's mm. still not good. Mm. It doesn't have the possibility of some sort of forward movement. I don't, I don't want to say progression in case that's too loaded, but it doesn't have the, the uh, of creative change. So then to, to what extent can it form the basis of, of some kind of dialogue? You know, well, what, what we know of the past, of course, in a political sense is, is of course, mediated by various things and bodies from historians to politicians to, you know, TV. Uh, you know, I suspect what we know of the 80s is being changed by, uh, you know, Stranger Things take on it. So uh, so I think that that in itself is not just a kind of a given, but but it's some, some terrain for action. And I suppose mm. um, uh, people dumping statues into um, the River Avon in Bristol and, and removing statues and the whole debate about what we should do uh, with that is is part of that politics. Um, it's not exactly nostalgia, of course, and I think that what might happen is that the nostalgia, the politics of nostalgia comes in there because people say, well, there was a time when I didn't have to think about this hmm. uh, and therefore my life was that little bit easier, a little bit un less unsettled. So I suppose you have to ask the question, well, well what, what's being lost? What's being lost by the people who are expressing a politics of nostalgia? And is everyone securing safe enough to feel like they could have a conversation about that or are the stakes really just too high? Wow. Ben, I think I might have an answer of some sort to your question about what's being lost or what's, what are people who are retreating to nostalgia after. And I wonder if what they're actually after is some kind of notion of um, a group transcending bond within society. Wow. So the problem that arises with about a lot of these examples, you could say the Australia example, you could say the, um, the statues example, is that they express themselves often, and not always, by the way, I need to make that clear, but often uh, as a politics of deconstruction and of destruction. Hmm. That is, it's standing up and saying, not this. And that tends, if it's articulated overwhelmingly that way, that tends to leave in its wake an absence, which is to say there's no politics of, okay, so around what do we cohere, all of us? Not 
around what do do you establish your cause or your claim that applies to a particular group of people. But what group transcending thing is there around which we can cohere? And I wonder, maybe this is just a natural consequence of the sort of um, radical and natural endpoint of liberalism or something. We could, we could do a theoretical diagnosis on it another day, but I wonder if what's the, the thing that makes nostalgia particularly attractive is there's no bonding, there's no binding alternative that transcends partial claims of groups anymore, mm. at least that's not being offered in a public way. And so to find one, you end up going to a past where those sorts of things seemed to be more prevalent or you mount a partial claim of your own, which is the sort of, you know, nativist version of it um, and certain expressions of like the Brexit impulse. Am I scratching at something that might be accurate there? I think that's uh, really well put. And I think that there is uh, there is a nostalgia for this time when some, you know, some sense of collectivity um, overcame difference, if you like. Now, at, at costs to whom, of, of course, is is the the initial rejoinder there but the the question is does does a politics of nostalgia open up the possibility of redis, rediscovering that um and i think this goes back to you know what you were saying about you know uh patriotism or sometimes it gets called civic nationalism um you know as opposed to kind of more exclusionary forms of that that idea and practice but you know can, can that be transcended because we seem to have moved away and this is you know I sometimes get nostalgic for the 1990s, as I think, you know, before <laughs> things got difficult. But is there a way in which, is there a difference? You know, is there some sort of middle ground between an exclusivist nationalism and and a kind of a politics of fragmentation um, in, in absence of those overarching claims? Or, or are those overarching claims always at someone or some group's expense? So uh, I, I think I think you are scratching at something. It's um, uh, it, it would be a very rich a rich topic to explore. Mm. All right. There's a research project for us, Ben. I'm glad the <laughs> yes. workshop went well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. We are out of time, I'm afraid. But um, it's been really, really fascinating and great to draw on yeah, your insights. So really appreciate you coming along. Thank you so much. Ben Welling, Senior Lecturer in Politics and International Relations at Monash University, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. And that is it for the current episode. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.